Hey, welcome to Seed Heads, the cross-pollinating podcast where our Canadian seed heroes tell their stories, share their how-to tips, and talk about the seeds they love. I'm your host, Steph Benoit, coming to you from Vancouver, BC, on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. For today's episode, I had the great joy and honour of talking to Tiffany Travers, an Indigenous seed and land steward. Tiffany grew up on her great-grandparents' homestead on her people's traditional Shaquemek territory in the Columbia Valley. She now lives on Fourth Sister Farm in the Peace region of BC, on so-called Treaty 8 territory, homeland of the Deneza peoples. The land she tends is also a home base for her ongoing exploration of the relationships between seed and heritage, history and self. It seems Tiffany is always up to something. She keeps horses, grows food, promotes wildfire prevention and emergency preparedness, and is passionate about community-led research. In addition to her day job and the time spent on her own farm, Tiffany serves as a volunteer advisory council member with the Community Seed Network and has participated in numerous participatory plant breeding and variety trialing projects. In our conversation, Tiffany talked about the importance of mentors, the power of reverent curiosity, and chatted about her experience exploring her ancestry through seeds. Tiffany is a gifted storyteller with a passion for seeds that is energizing to listen to. This conversation felt very timely and hopeful amidst all of the change 2020 has brought. I am very excited to be able to share it with you. I hope you enjoy. Hey Tiffany, how are you? Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi Steph, it's really good to see you. I'm glad to talk with you today. When we were throwing around this idea of having a podcast with Canadian seed heroes and having these young, uh, young people getting into the seed world interview their seed heroes, you were someone who I initially and immediately thought of wanting to talk to because of your immense passion and also your sort of omnipresence in the, the BC seed world. You were popping up in everything and seeing how much energy you bring into this and, and sort of the passion really made me want to talk more with you. So thank you so much for making this time today. It really does feel like a privilege to me. I wanted to ask you a little bit about where your relationships with seeds began. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, my relationship with seeds began when I was just a little girl. You know, I, I remember growing up on my great grandparents' um, original homestead along the Columbia River. I always would find myself, you know, crinkling yarrow seed between my hands out, out in the woods. And I just, I, I just love that tactile feeling of, of seed. And I never realized, you know, hey, I'm actually broadcasting, you know, native species of seed at that very young age. And, um, you know, being away from land for so long, um, I didn't realize the importance of seed to me personally until I had the privilege of coming back onto land up in the the peace region. And uh, yeah, once we came onto this property, I just started putting seed in the ground and and things really took off from there. So you've got a farm now or a piece of land that that you're on and it's got a really unique name. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the, the story behind your farm. Yeah, so we call the farm here Fourth Sister Farm. And it, it has dual meaning. So, I mean, a lot of us are familiar with the planting methodology of the three sisters um, or milpa. And that is the story of, you know, the three sisters that work 
in conjunction with the, each other, you know, you have your sister corn who grows nice and tall and acts as a trellis for sister bean and sister bean in turn uh, fixes nitrogen into the ground to help feed sister corn and sister squash and sister squash acts as like a natural ground cover to block out weeds and hold in moisture. And this has been a, um, a timeless um, method that has been used by indigenous peoples for many, many years and is still used to this day. I really felt that to honor that and my indigenous roots, I wanted to, you know, pay homage to that being that, and, you know, with my Shaquapnik roots, we are very fierce land and water stewards and protectors. And I really felt like my work here that I'm doing on the farm is acting as that fourth sister. But also, I like to pay some respect to my great grandmother, um, Elder Sheila Palmer, Kinbasket Dehart, um, beautiful human being, amazing storyteller, and just she really you know, put that love of nature and giving back to the land, you know, she really instilled that in me. And she happened to be the fourth sister of seven sisters, um, you know, residential school survivors, uh, definitely very resilient women. And uh, yeah, I really just wanted to, to pay respect to her and her resiliency. And she went on to become this incredible storyteller. And I really I admired that and, you know, I, I wanted to live up to that <laughs> storytelling ability. So, yeah, it's pay, just paying some respects to, uh, to great grandma Sheila. And, and talking about very powerful matriarchs as well, um, for me as a young, you know, female identifying seed saver, it's, it's been so powerful to see women at the forefront of this movement. I was wondering if you could speak a bit to the importance of having mentors in the seed community. Definitely. I, I think mentors, um, they come in many different shapes and sizes and they come into our lives. I find at the most appropriate times, I have many mentors. I'm actually finding myself becoming a mentor without even realizing it. You know, people are reaching out to me for information and, and for advice. And, and I never thought, <laughs> I still consider myself as you know, baby seed steward, you know, I still have so much to learn. I'm fumbling around trying to figure stuff out. But uh, I guess just in doing the work, you know, people see that and they're, they're wanting to, to ask, you know, say, how do I do this? You know, how do I hand pol pollinate squash? Or how do I thresh seed? And, and I just, I love to be able to share those resources with people. I think it's so important to have people fall in love again with their food and know where their food comes from and their seed comes from and really just respecting and loving the land. Um, and that's a big part of uh, the other side of my passion work that I do as well is, is definitely having these sort of tougher conversations on how can we reframe our language around these systems that have for many years um, negatively impacted uh, many different peoples, but, you know, especially um, indigenous and, and people of color, like uh, these systems have definitely oppressed a lot of uh, those types of groups. And yeah, I just find that language holds so much, so much power and so much energy. So yeah, I've been having some pretty uncomfortable conversations with people, but I love that. I, I kind of revel in having these uncomfy conversations and in safe spaces, but you know, these are conversations that have needed to happen for a really, really long time. And uh yeah, I've, I've met some, some really amazing people along the way in doing that work. 
Yeah, you, you've talked about having a few really important mentors along the way as well. Do you want to talk about these people that have influenced you? You know, being given a platform like this, yes, I can talk about the important work that I'm doing myself, but I really think this is an opportunity for me to give thanks and honor and uplift the people that have really influenced and inspired me along the way. And it's actually really interesting. Uh, you know, I started taking Rowan White's Seed Seva online mentorship a couple years ago. And, you know, we start talking about healing through food and our, you know, finding our own ancestral seeds and food ways and talking about indigenous plant breeding and um, ethical seed sourcing and all these different things. And it was just like, boom, like everything just mm -hmm. exploded for me. And I started going down these rabbit holes of trying to find myself and heal myself as well. There's a lot of healing to be done. And um, so Rowan herself, she's been this amazing mentor to me. I consider her a dear sister. She, uh, she weaves beautiful stories in everything that she does. And I love her dearly. She's definitely helped guide me along the way. Um, but in that work that I was doing with Rowan, you know, we're trying to find our own, our own seed pathways. And, you know, I started looking around, poking around on the internet, and I actually found Caroline Chartrand's story with, um, at the time it was USC, but seed change now. And she was telling this beautiful story about um, what her Métis peoples were growing and eating along the Red River, you know, way, way back when they actually still had access to their land, like they were forced from their land. Um, and still don't have access to land. So she was looking for her food, her food ways and her seeds. And I saw her story and I was like, wow, I, I just need to know this woman. She's amazing. The amount of work that she's done. And, and obviously, you know, urban indigenous Métis woman um, living in, you know, so-called Winnipeg um, and really just struggling to find access to land and still doing this really important work of saving seed and adapting it and just protecting these beautiful um, seeds of her people. So I reached out to USC and said, you know, hey, like I can't find Caroline's information anywhere. I would really love to chat with her and, you know, a little bit of back and forth to make sure it was okay. Because, of course, she's you know, quite a private person. But uh, she was open to talking to me and it just, it started this beautiful relationship. Her and I talk at least weekly, sometimes more. I'll send her photos every now and then. Yeah, we've gone on to present at the Indigenous Farming Conference in Minnesota, just on the work that we're doing with um, what we could call, say, like uh, seed collection succession planning and um, ways that I'm helping her steward this immense collection of seeds that she's been caretaking for so long. But now, you know, she doesn't have the access to land. Um, you know, the seeds aren't getting any younger. So I, I basically told her I would help her do the work that needs to be done. And so, yes, we've exchanged seeds. I'm caretaking for quite a few of her varieties here on our, on our little chunk of paradise. And yeah, she's guiding me all along the way, telling me when I'm doing stuff wrong and, <laughs> and congratulating me when I'm doing things right. And I just love to send her photos of these beautiful indigenous squash and all these beans that are doing really well. So yeah, she's, she's one of my dear mentors, Caroline, for sure, Caroline and Rowan. Um, and you know, more and more mentors and, and aunties, as I call them, start, start coming out, you know, these beautiful women that are on the front lines of doing this important work. Uh, you know, I look at Dawn Morrison, she's, you know, my, 
my Shaquat McSister, my Shaquat auntie. I love her so much. And she is doing such incredible work in dismantling a lot of these or doing the work to try to dismantle a lot of these very oppressive systems and reframing language in institutions and, and academia. And she's been doing that work for a very, very long time. So through her work with the Working Group for Indigenous Food Sovereignty, as well as the um, Food Freedom School that she has as well in Vancouver and Chase, she's doing remarkable work with a very large cohort of people from all over so-called BC. And, you know, I've reached out to her to offer any help and energy I can to sort of her initiatives. And yeah, it's been wonderful. You know, I try and check in with them every so often. I'm sharing seeds and medicines with them because I know that they're doing that really hard, um, laborious work um, that definitely is very draining. So I try and give my energy to them where, wherever I can. So yeah, those are three of my probably uh, very dear mentors. I mean, not to mention, obviously, my great grandma, Sheila, who's no longer with us. Um, and then my auntie Dusty, who um, has been teaching me some of our, some of our Shaquetmic ways as well. You know, she taught me how to, the way she was taught how to smudge and, you know, just learning, you know, relearning our ceremonies and our traditions and trying to keep those alive, which I think is very, very important for the next generations. It's amazing too when you start talking about about seed heroes. It's it's an ever expanding thing, you know. Once you you find one person and then you find the next, and you realize that there have been so many people who have been stewarding seeds and taking care of the land for so long. So it, a few times that I've seen you, uh, you know, pop into webinars or speak, you've used the phrase reverent curiosity as something that guides your seed work, and I think that that phrase in particular is so incredibly beautiful. I was kind of hoping you could elaborate on on what that means to you. Yeah, definitely. Reverent curiosity, uh, you know, and obviously that's, you know, that's not my own language. That was shared with me uh, by, by Rowan White. And I just, I really feel that this, the reverent curiosity for me personally means, you know, moving forward with a lot of this work when I'm unsure um, and also without, you know, a, a formal academic education as well. I mean, I'm, I'm basically trial by error and trial by doing. And I find that that curiosity, that reverent curiosity is such a, you know, it's such a, a little girl tiff thing. You know, it's <laughs> me when I was a young girl, you know, crushing those yarrow seeds between my fingers to see what would happen. And I, I really feel that that's a lot of what I do around the farm. You know, I just, I, I'm so curious. I want to know what happens, you know, what happens when I try this or what happens if I don't do this? And um, yeah, so a lot of the seed work that I do that isn't to, uh, to do with the, the rarer um, indigenous seeds, you know, the ones that do need a lot more babying, but with other varieties, like through variety trialing, I, I like to, you know, put them to the test. I have a, a very <laughs> challenging soil, a very hard clay packed soil as well as a very short growing season in zone two, which is roughly around 90 days of growing. Uh, and I really just like to put these different seeds to the test a little bit because, you know, with our changing climate, we have to change and adapt as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think, yeah, definitely that reverent curiosity for me is just to see like, what happens if I just leave them out there a little bit longer, you know, <laughs> can they stand just a little bit of cold weather and frost? 
And yeah, I'm not too mean with my plants though. I just, I can't do it, <laughs> but yeah, some of them and I, you know, then they get these, these beautiful names, you know, it's not just Alaskan pea, it's Alaskan pea, the survivor of frosts, you know, they'll get this <laughs> brand name because they've survived like a, a pretty hard frost here. So yeah. I like to honor that a little bit as well. <laughs> For people who aren't familiar with the exact geography of, you know, what's now known as British Columbia, you're also at sort of the extremes. I think that this is something that makes it all the more impressive to me is that you're, you're doing all of this in an area where you can get frost potentially in August. And, and that's that. So it's kind of one of these things of like proving that you can absolutely do this if you have the will, even if uh, you're, not, you're not sitting in sunny Southern California with a year-round growing sort of situation. What are some of the, the projects that are coming down the line for you? For the last little while, I've actually been volunteering on the advisory council for the Community Seed Network, which is a sort of a joint venture project with Seed Savers Exchange and Seed Change. And basically what we've been trying to do as advisory council members is advocate on behalf of this amazing resource that's out there for anyone. You know, you can go online, you can um, search for people that might have have themselves listed as mentors or Mm -hmm. seed sellers or um, like really anything. Seed libraries as well. Those are those are on there. And then there's a whole page where they've just they've compiled all this information on how to save seeds from beginner all the way up to advanced plant breeding, you know, as well as operational guidelines on, you know, how, if I wanted to set up a seed library at my public library in town, how do I go about doing that? You know, instead of reinventing this wheel and starting from scratch, they've really taken all this information and put it in one place. And it's just the most beautiful thing. It's very satisfying to know (laughs) that, you know, people don't have to uh, spin their wheels, like trying to, you know, do all this research because a lot of it has been done before and it's really just this living uh, document and website where the information can get updated at any time. So my work there is really just, um, you know, on behalf of the seeds and on behalf of, you know, sharing this information with others to show, you know, it's, it's not, it's not hard and it's not easy to save seed. It's kind of that thing. It depends on how far you really want to go with it. But it really, you know, for the home gardener who wants to save seed for their family, it's, it's really quite easy if that's something that you want to get into. And I know with COVID, there was this mad dash of people buying tons of seed and, you know, the seed, big seed companies even were having to close down because they were just getting bombarded with seed orders. And, you know, I saw this happening and I was, I was really torn, you know, a part of me was feeling really amazing for, you know, seed growers saying like, yeah, this is awesome. They're going to be doing so well this year in a time when things are very challenging. But then on the other side, I was like, oh, shoot, like, well, you know, if they don't have that information on how to save and care for those seeds throughout the season and then to save them at the end of the season, well, then we're right back where we started in the spring. And just knowing that my, you know, my indigenous blood and heart tells me that time is not linear. And we're always thinking in this, like, here's a start and a stop. It's Mm -hmm. not, you know, it's this, it's this cycle, it's this cyclical being. And I think this is a way for me to, um, to really advocate for that and help people help guide them along that path. If that's really where they want to go, you know, because the seeds need to be adapting alongside us and alongside our climate. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I just, I fear that you know, we're going to get back into that same situation come spring again when 
you know, if there's people out there that bought all these seeds and planted them and maybe they got a really nice harvest, but they didn't realize that, oh, hey, I did get a really sweet harvest. I can actually go and save some of those seeds to plant for next year and not be in that, you know, um, not have that fear again that they're not going to be able to buy seeds next year. So have you come across any seeds that have either been really well adapted or had really unique stories or that you feel particularly sort of connected to for certain reasons? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, there's so many that I, it's hard to pick just a few. I mean, it's like trying to tell me to pick my favorite child. It's really difficult. Um, you know, I, I look back at when I started the seed save a mentorship with, with Rowan and there was a particular seed that was gifted to me uh, from my dear sister, Danica. Um, it was a purple orach seed that she, you know, had acquired in, in the Okanagan and she gifted it to me. And I'd, I'd never really grown it or known really what it was. I just, she had fed this purple orach to me in, in a salad when we were together for, um, for a dance workshop in Vancouver. And it was just this beautiful, like deep, rich purple plant. And I, yeah, so it, it was just so gorgeous. It was like a mountain spinach, this perpetual spinach. I'm like, oh man, I need to grow that. It's just so mm-hmm. beautiful and see how it does, you know, in the North. And so that was sort of one of the seeds that I chose as one of my project seeds to um, steward throughout the season and just see how it did. And, you know, I, I put it in the ground and I started growing it. And sure enough, this beautiful purple plant started coming out and I was just as learning about her, learning about what the leaves looked like, you know, what happened when she went to seed and just, you know, tasting it at every chance and just fell in love with this plant. And so over the years, you know, I just have really been carefully growing her and watching her. Um, you know, there was a full two seasons where I was actually roguing out some of the green because I mean, orach comes in, you know, purples and greens and different colors, but there, it just had this such deep, magenta, beautiful color. I figured I wanted to try and um, harness that gorgeousness that I fell in love with. So I, you know, would just start picking out the green and, and eating it and in my own way, doing my own plant breeding. And I mean, mm-hmm. sort of realizing it, but not realizing it at the same time that that's exactly what I was doing in my own little way. You know, learning about it along the way with Rowan's course. And it's just this gorgeous plant that's basically naturalized itself here in our in our zone, you know, it reseeds itself. She comes back and she's just, just this beautiful, gorgeous plant. And I don't know if you've ever seen uh, purple orach when she goes to seed. I mean, I, I've got pictures where it's well over my head. Oh it's my just gosh. this like magnificent plant. Oh yeah. Like a lot of seed plants when they go to seed are just, they're phenomenal. So definitely really fallen in love with that, that whole seed, the plant, and just that it was gifted to me by somebody I love so dearly. Yeah, so that's one. Um, another one that I'm actually just growing for the first time this year is a bean that was uh, given to me by Chris Hubbard. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of Chris Hubbard. Um, and I was uh, Lisa Bloodnick, who's also in my seed save mentorship. She was a- able to get a few seeds from Chris for me and, and send them up to me in the north. And they're actually a, a Tunaha bean. Uh, importance to the Tunaha people, the Kootenai people who are my cousins. Like these are, these are my people that, you know, when the Shaquetmik and the Tunaha met in the Columbia Valley, I mean, they almost killed each other. There was almost a great battle and they found ways to communicate with each other because they didn't speak the same language. And over time they became great allies and friends and eventually intermarried. So 
I mean, these are ancestors. Like these are actually ancestral seeds for me. These are my cousin beans, I call them. <laughs> and so I'm growing them uh, in the greenhouse right now so I can keep a really close eye on them. And I'm just, every time I go out there and see them, they're, they're changing, they're beautiful. They're growing this really like these huge, rich green leaves, beautiful, like double color pink flowers, beautiful flowers. So I, I can't wait to see what the, what the pods do, but they're, yeah, they're beautiful. So one day, what, what I'm hoping is that, you know, maybe I can grow out a bit of that seed and then eventually bring some of that home with me and, and speak to some of the elders and see, you know, get more of their story. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, they do have connections. The Kootenai territory does dip down into, um, you know, what's known as the United States right now. Um, and so we, there we have that shared um, territory. And so it'd be really neat and interesting to see if we can't maybe find a little bit more of their story. I feel like their story isn't, you know, complete. So it'd be really interesting to to try and piece that together. Right now is a really interesting time to be talking about about decolonization in our food system. And I think a lot of people like myself who are who are settlers on this land and are trying to to imagine what what honoring indigenous food sovereignty actually looks like and what decolonizing the food system actually looks like. And I was wondering if you, if you have anything to speak to on that. Yeah, definitely. That's a really good question. And it is, you know, it's, it's high time that these conversations have been, you know, were happening. Um, And I call them, you know, those uncomfy conversations. Um, You know, I I don't have the answer really um, other than, listening to black and indigenous, you know, people of color and supporting them in their work wherever possible. Um, it is just so important. There's so many people out there that are doing this, this really hard work and at the same time healing from so many years and generations of oppression that I think now more than ever, we need to wake up and we need to be, um, we need to be helping our people and just helping each other heal um, but at the same time, doing our own healing. I mean, I, I know that the ter- you know, terms white fragility and, and, and white guilt uh, get thrown around quite a bit. And, but they are these true things that are happening. You know, it's, mm-hmm. you get that gut feeling, that visceral feeling that you're just like, oh, I just want, I want to help. And I, that feeling, it sucks. It's like, yeah, it does suck. It sucks really, really hard. But, you know, the people that are being oppressed upon, that really sucks. And I don't even have any idea what that even feels like. I come from a very privileged background. So I guess my advice is really to, to listen, Um, you know, indigenous and and black and people of color, like, you know, they're trying to really figure out what exactly is needed, but when the time comes for when people are ready to, to let us know what is needed, we really just need to be listening. We need to sit back you know, listen to what they have to say and realize that, you know, these are people that have been oppressed for a very, very long time. They're not there to educate because it's very, very exhausting. Um, You know, so there's ways that maybe we can help by, uh, yeah, again, you know, amplifying their voices, amplifying their work and just, yeah, just really sitting back and, and listening to that. And, you know, these people just with so much oppression that's been thrown upon them and thrust at them, it's, you know, they're very resilient people. And I just, I actually had a quick story that 
my great grandmother, um, she wrote for a, a periodical back in the day, you know, just speaking to um, the Indian Act, which I mean, it's, we look at our, you know, reserve system, and it's still in play. And, you know, mm-hmm. these are the types of systems that are, that are very, very harmful. They separate us. And uh, yeah, I just, I, I wanted to read this story um, from my, from my great grandmother. The Indians worked hard and also made their own clothing. I remember the first time the government started helping them. It was 1928. I went to the Athlemere post office and grocery store run by Mr. Frank Richardson. He said, take this box to your grandmother. The government is feeding the Indians now. The box contains salt, sugar, about a cup of flour, beans, and baking powder. The Shushwaps made a sourdough bread, so they didn't even use baking powder. But the Kootenays did use the baking powder for their bread. Grandmother sat on the floor, looking at the box of goods and at the beans, and she laughed, as there was only about a cup of dried beans. She said, oh my, the poor man must be short of beans. Tell Mr. Richardson I still have a half a gunny sack of dried beans at my old house. I don't remember what else the government gave out, but it was just handfuls, maybe only enough for one day for one person. Just a funny story, you know, even after (laughs) all of that, you know, my great grandmother's grandmother felt sorry for this poor man (laughs) that he didn't have enough beans to feed all these people. So yeah, I mean, just it shows the resiliency. I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, my my great grandmother's family they they went through a lot. They you know they they survived residential school system. Um, my great grandmother saw you know how alcohol ravaged a lot of her people. You know, when the white folks came through, and even after all of the heartbreak and the oppression and the stealing of land like that's unceded territory shakwetmakulu is unceded territory she still was this amazing woman who fed people food fed people these incredible stories and just embraced her language i mean she could speak english uh she could speak speak her shakwetmak language she could speak the tunaha language i think she could even speak a few swiss swears that my great grandpa taught her (laughs) so yeah, really just, you know, coming back to the question of, you know, what can we as settlers do to help? Um, yeah, really just, just listen and, and, and amplify these voices and support, you know, different causes that are happening out there. Because, um, yeah, like, you know, donations and, you know, grant funding, a lot of these um, people are relying on, you know, grant funding as well for a lot of their work through nonprofits. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, I think, how we can help for now. There's a lot, a lot of work to do and a long path ahead of us, but I feel, I feel very inspired to, to see women like yourself at the forefront of this. So thank you, Tiffany, so, so much. I can't express how much it means to me to be able to, to share this time with you, to have you in this movement, uh, to have you share your stories and your voice. And I hope that over time we can continue to, to work together on this bigger project and continue to cross paths. Thank you so much for having me. And I, yeah, I really hope that you know, we can, you know, keep having these discussions, keep having those uncomfy conversations. It's important. Um, definitely. Yeah. Just keep talking and keep, um, you know, keep amplifying the voices of those, of the black and indigenous and people of color, you know, like the work is really important. There's a lot of people doing some remarkable work out there 
for the better of the world. I mean, we're doing, we're doing it for everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Seedheads is produced by the Bedwa Family Initiative on Canadian Seed Security, a program of Seed Change. Seed Change's main office is located on the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg people. You'll find Seedheads wherever you find your favorite podcasts. This work is made possible thanks to our amazing donors and the incredible community of farmers and organizations we work with. To find episode transcripts and translations, learn more about our programs, and to support seed work in Canada, please visit seedsecurity.ca.